This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing Janet Armstrong. Chicago politics. Canadian desserts. And the Gargola de Barceloneta. Battling spellcasters throw down in God's Forge. From Atlas Games, the publisher of Gloom, Once Upon a Time, and Ars Magica. In God's Forge, you roll, re-roll, and combine dice to summon creations and cast spells. Be the last wizard standing. Or at least the least dead wizard. At the end of the game. Because having remains to send home to your family counts as victory in our book. God's Forge is available May 1st at your friendly local game store. Learn more about the game at atlas-games.com slash God's Forge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, and the roar of a zillion tons of liquid oxygen being set on fire by the government. Welcome <laughs> us to the gaming hut. Because within the gaming hut... We are also combining it, we're wrapping our little arms around a Tell Me More segment in which Patreon backer Jake follows up on my review of First Man, uh, Damien Chazelle's cool Neil Armstrong movie. And Jake asks, how does one portray a Janet Armstrong type character, uh, the wife of Neil Armstrong, in a NASA-centric adventure slash setting? And Robin, I guess this goes... Not just to the Janet Armstrongs, but to the, you know, potentially to all of the, the wives whose emotional support is core to the story or is, uh, the question of the story even, but is not actually, you know, so much about, uh, shooting Nazis and zooming to the moon or actually paying Nazis and zooming to the moon as traditionally happens. <laughs> as um, may, may have been. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, so do we want to start on Janet Armstrong portrayed by the wonderful Claire Foy and move out? Yeah. So uh, I first actually have a question for you about first man, which I've yet to catch up with because, yeah. um, just based on the trailers and the obvious dramatic setup of it, uh, mm -hmm. it looks like, uh, the screenwriters had, the typical challenge with this sort of uh, setup of having the worried spouse character, uh, which is a staple of cop uh, genre, as well as uh, uh, people going off and doing desperate things. In I, mean, space I mean, it goes genre. back to the Iliad, right? I mean, that's yeah. Hector coming down off the walls of Troy and his wife saying, be careful, honey. Right. Um, and so the problem <laughs> with, with that is that it's sort of uh, when... Uh, done uh, sort of in a rote manner and by numbers, that character is actually kind of weak because their role in the story is to be the character who says, don't go and do the thing that everybody needs you to do in order for there to be a story, that, right. you're, that there's sort of a drag on the narrative. So how well does, does First Man deal with that classic problem of, uh, of writing? Well, I mean, to begin with, Janet Armstrong never says, don't go to the moon. Janet Armstrong... Yeah, the, the sort of the the duel for Neil Armstrong's soul is not between the moon and Janet Armstrong because she knows she would lose that duel. The the duel is between Neil Armstrong's need to be stoic and in control of everything, and uh, whether or not he needs to carry that to the moon with him to go to the moon. And she's not again. She's not anti moon. Our Janet Armstrong. She's anti Neil walling himself off, but because. She is a proud individual human being. She's not just, you know, throwing herself at Ned Neil Armstrong. She wants him to make an effort and open up and come to her, but she's not necessarily going to be opening up at the same time because that's how human relationships work. So the story is that their emotional sort of duel or um counter petitioning, I guess, technically is happening during the moon launch, but it's not an, it's not anti the moon launch. It's just the other thing that has got Neil Armstrong sort of bottled up is that this uh, inability to connect with his with his wife and because because the pressures on him we are led to understand are pr more pressure than anyone has ever had. And you can't just go to your wife and say, oh, by the way, this is why I'm so messed up is I'm going to the moon because no one could understand that if you're not already Neil Armstrong or at least one of the 
one of the Gemini seven. And so the, the notion that, uh, that, that Janet's emotional needs and his emotional needs may be the same emotional need, but they're not the same emotional need at the same point in the story. And they're not of the same magnitude is I think sort of the interesting balancing act that, that Chazelle does. But like you, me and everyone, he just wants to go to the moon. So it does wind up being, it's not the A plot of the story. It's not, you know, first man, a love story. It's first man goes to the damn moon. So that's, that's sort of her role dramatically is just to feed the emotional intensity of Neil Armstrong. Uh, not necessarily to say, uh, honey, that battle moon's going to kill you, uh, type stuff. But there are, there are, of course, because there almost certainly were, you know, legitimate moments where she's like, uh, be honest with your kids, you know, tell them that there's real danger. Don't, you know, don't just hide it all off and, and be a, a Marlboro man, right? Right. And that points to an answer to the game design question that we've been asked to entertain in that you can reconfigure that slightly. It sounds like these two things are in parallel in first man, but in, uh, a game in, in any game, not just a, a NASA adventure game where some of the characters are doing the dangerous things and other people are their emotional support network that you're, that the job of the emotional supporters is to enable uh, those uh, characters to make personal transformations that are necessary for them to advance in the adventure part of the, the plot line. So in Hero Quest and then in Rune Quest, this is called an augment where one character uh, makes a role and then that allows the other character to uh, add something to the role. In this case, I would think it's almost sort of you have to, you know, combine a sort of uh, a drama system, emotional scene thing where you uh, have to, you know, achieve a certain transformation or overcome a personal obstacle in order to then go on and overcome the practical obstacle. And so, uh, and I think that you would make that more interesting because the, the challenge there then there is that you still have sort of half of the group who are doing the, you know, the objectively interesting uh, outward things and the, uh, and the emotional things. And then the other members of the group are just, uh, are, are restricted to the emotional lane. So I think sooner or later, first of all, if you're making up a NASA-based adventure game, the adventure portion of just going to the moon and, you know, making sure the lander sequence is correctly executed and saying your line right or mostly light right when you, when you step on yeah. the moon, that that it's too would, uh, I think, uh, for your average group of gamers kind of pall. And so, the question is, what additional level of nerdy adventure do we add to it that then the characters who putatively seem like the civilians uh, can then be neck deep in? Right. And the, the, so if, if, for example, and just to pick something at random, uh, Conspiracy of Druids is trying to stop NASA from going to the moon and profane its holy surface, then just like uh, in the very terrible episodes of the unit, which you should not use as a model at all, uh, the wives get caught up in the in the domestic side of the fight while their men folk are overseas shooting terrorists. You could have the wives battling the druids in sort of a conjure wifey sort of domestic magic versus domestic magic type approach. And it can be kind of, I mean, like in Conjure Wife, you can even do it as a joke where the men don't even know that there's a Druid war and the women do, but they can't tell their men because if they do, the men will probably like report it or something stupid. And then uh, the Druids win because, you know, Druidry gets uh, revealed and the 60s happened too much. I mean, the 60s were, were happening enough as it was during the moon landing, really. And so the, and so that could be sort of a, a, a thing where when the two characters meet emotionally, the wives can't tell about their druid war and the astronauts can't explain about why it is a man's got to go to the moon. And so they both have emotional things that they have to keep from each other, but they also have to make some kind of connection in the role playing in order for each of them to get the, the bonus dice or whatever it is mechanically that, that feeds that into back into the game. Uh, and that comes out of like Buffy, the vampire slayer has scenes where the, the Scoobies, you know, emotionally support the slayer. Uh, Bobble Gumshoe has it where when a character does something, they have to have an emotional reconnect with the character that they used in order to do that or else they suffer penalties. Um, there's, there's many other games, I, I assume, that have that sort of mandated, uh, emotional interlude or, or refueling or, or, you know, at least prophylactic, uh, session to avoid worse things happening. And you can certainly see, 
uh, like you say, a drama system, uh, type component being, being tacked onto it. But I kind of like the idea where they have their own worries, but they can't, uh, share it with the, with the, with the astronaut. And so there's a, there's a dual sort of a parallel activity there. And well, in, in fact, what I would be tempted to do under, under that setup now, yeah. the fighting druids is now way more interesting than going to the moon. So mm. what I would do is say all of the characters have astronauts who they uh, care about and are uh, trying to make sure that they get to the moon uh, safely without uh, learning the horrible druid secret. And so those are all game master characters that under which or characters or sort of secondary player characters that you have some degree of control. Yeah, over. I, think, I think every player should play an astronaut and someone, uh, some other astronauts loved one. Right. Or, or even you just play your own uh, astronaut loved one. I think it's more fun if you do it the other way, because then you can have, emotional scenes between characters instead you of can, you talking right, yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so and so the notion is that the astronaut half of the game then has to, like you say, become mechanically interesting where you have to sort of figure out which 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 puzzle tree how to get your guys to the moon. And and you know, the the question is is maybe it's just a matter of roll the dice and that's the exciting part. And it's and the the moon sequence or the or the you know Training and, and shuttling and, and test pilot piloting sequences are all really short, but they are really exciting because you got a ton of dice rolling and, and odds you can't calculate in your head. And then, then you go back to the probably longer and like you say, objectively cooler 60s housewives versus druids storyline in which you're playing maybe, you know, your main character basically uh, is Janet Armstrong or, or whoever. And then I, I think I would still be tempted, you know, to uh, have the, uh, astronaut characters, uh, under control of the, of the character who's, uh, uh, most related to them so that they can enjoy the excitement of getting the die rolls right. Um, and so it might be that the, uh, that the GM, uh, plays the astronauts in those uh, emotional sequences and therefore they're kind of short. Um, but that because your, if your objective is to make sure that your astronaut gets through but another player is making all the roles for that astronaut. I think that emotional connection is sort of getting fuzzy. So if, if I, mean, I guess the, that that sort of depends on the game group. I mean, right. And if you've got a game group where everyone is 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 good friends and is or is really good at sort of interpersonal role play, I think you'd want to lean into that. But if you're talking about a, a more atomistic game group like you're talking about, maybe you would want to do a, a thing where. The only way to get really involved in your in your astronaut die roll is to beat both the astronaut and the spouse. Or you could split it up so that the a play the, another player does the dialogue for that character, but that you still do the die rolls because that's your ultimate sense of uh, victory comes from uh, making sure that they make their engaged landing gear roll despite the presence right. of the druidic gremlin on the on the mm. bottom. So that you, right. I think, you still want to have a a tight connection between that moment of success, you know, rolling a critical to get the gremlin off the thing would be, I think, feel like more your achievement if you're the one making that role and you're the one who created all the circumstances allowing that to, to happen. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of that comes down to the table. And if you were, you know, looking at uh, doing something like this as a commercial rule set, <laughs> you crazy person, I would say maybe allow – allow either sort of approach to work and, and highlight these issues. Is there a way, uh, to sort of, uh, pull it a little bit closer to, to Jake's concept where there is a way for a straight up no druids, uh, support character to be super interesting in a game where the main characters, the men folk, if one wants to be NASA, um, are off doing whatever the exciting thing is, you know, fighting the hated Achaeans or, uh, solving crimes or, um, flying to Mars. Is there a way to make those supporting characters besides just have, have a GM who's really good at playing GMCs? Is there a way to, to give those a, a meaty, uh, in-game role? Do you think that there's something we can do, I mean, because that is a super standard. I mean, people are saying, oh, I'm taking my dependent NPC. It's my lovely wife who desperately wants me not to die when I go out and fight serial killers or whatever. Well, so you're talking about a, a, a campaign in which you are now playing the astronauts or? I mean, I'm talking about a campaign in which you're playing the, the standard adventurers. Is there a way to make your DNPCs, whoever they are, wives, uh, boyfriends, uh, kids, to, to give them more emotional weight in the game than just the GM is good. Or, uh, oh boy, they cost me a lot of points. I hope the serial killer doesn't get them. Um, I, I think that you have to then go back to the idea of 
you have to earn your ability to move forward in the uh, uh, practical track, the procedural track, by uh, achieving emotional breakthroughs. Uh, and so that there's that you conceive your astronaut character as uh, flawed in some way that will prevent them from uh, finally achieving victory in the mission unless they go through a series of challenges uh, that involve uh, interactions with... So it's not just, oh, you get points from this person because then you have to rescue them because we've removed the druids who might otherwise be menacing them. Mm-hmm. And that uh, you have to uh, keep your personal storyline sufficiently interesting and rewarding in some way to make you deserve the uh, ability to succeed because uh, in most uh, narratives, uh, procedural narratives that pe- people, you know, you don't just succeed because you're the best at what it is that you do in an impersonal way, but because you embody something, even if that thing that you're embodying is the spirit of professionalism or stoicism right. or, or so forth. So I would think it would be, uh, you know, that you, uh, have to go to them to get fuel and whether you get that fuel from, from them or not, or, or, uh, you know, a pass key to the next stage, um, however you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use for that. It's right. something that you have to earn and it's not certain that you're going to get it. And if you fail to get it in the obvious way, then you have to come up with some other less obvious way in right. order to, you know, rack up the uh, personal advancement and transformation in order to become the, you know, archetypal version of yourself and sort of the, instead of the flawed yeah. one. Sort of a slightly uh, fuller, more emotional uh, version of the, of the cutscenes in Delta Green when you, you, you go back and you have your, your interlude scene in the world. And if you're trying to regain your stability or your uh, sanity, you have to go back and uh, interact with your uh, loved ones and maybe you'll screw it up because you've got horrible monstering PSD, PTSD. Um, and, and so there's a real chance that you'll just ruin it because it's a horror game. But you could see a, a slightly uh, richer thing than just the one die roll that that is that turns it into a a, a more of a, like you say a drama system uh, sort of a an emotional give and take moment. Right. It flips it uh, from uh, you know that's basically an emotionalized version of the D and D characters taking their standard rest. Right. And it flips it to rather than this is what you must do to get points that you've already lost from the previous scene. It's now you must do this in order to get the uh, the resource that you need in order to uh, succeed in the upcoming scene. Right. And uh, speaking of things that are upcoming, I think uh, I hear a countdown to an exciting commercial message. And on the other side, I bet there's another exciting segment. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrain Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? Well, it's time to dust off a uh, a hut that has grown a little bit dusty. We'll have to pull off the old tarp and see. Oh, there it is with its ballot boxes and its its uh, withered bunting. We have the politics hut. And, of course, the reason 
uh, that we haven't uh, done as much politics as, as we used to do is that it moves so fast these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, Brexit or Trump world or or even or even lovely, lovely uh, uh, Ontario is is full of excitement now. Uh, well, uh, Ontario, I, I could probably do a segment <laughs> on Ontario and it would be about the same in 10 days. It would just be uh, somewhat dispiriting. Right. And, and I think that's that's the sort of the well. First of all, if you've if you've gotten this far in your life without realizing the politics side is mostly dispiriting, congratulations. But the, the, the people <laughs> used to, to like the side. adventures of, of the previous Ford uh, <laughs> right. somewhat too much, always in my opinion. But this yeah. th- this sequel is is uh, they've forgotten that it was a comedy. It's bland and characterless. It's like Blues Brothers two thousand. Yes, uh, <laughs> but there is a story uh, that is uh, local, not to me, but to you. That I speaking bet, of uh, Blues Brothers like, real. Yes, a lot of folks that do not have the. Uh, the full background uh, that a, a local and as already established jaded resident uh, can <laughs> give us. So, uh, Ken, uh, the Chicago mayor's office uh, is suddenly a very different place than it, yeah, uh, it was is. before. Uh, so when when last we paid attention to Chicago politics, Rahm Emanuel was uh, still uh, uh, holding court and uh, uh, being a classic tough a sharp-elbowed uh, Chicago mayor, but uh, he decided not to run. Yeah, he did. Well, I, I mean, uh, what, well, first of all, let's go back to him deciding not to run because this is going to set up the rest of it. Okay. Way back in the day, before his re-election, his, his first re-election, his only re-election, <laughs> um, there was a, a set to between the police and a guy named uh, Laquan McDonald, and it turns out the police shot him pretty much completely unjustifiably, and the city paid... A million and or more, uh, some millions at least, in hush money to the family to keep it out of the newspapers until after Rom's reelection. And guess what? It came out. But he got reelected before it came out and started to really burn. And Laquan McDonald became sort of a, a, a symbol of everything that was wrong with the machine way, with the sort of pay hush money, shove it under the, under the carpet. Let's make the sure it happens again. Oh, wait a minute. The whole nine yards, um, the, 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 the no accountability, all of the parts of the machine that people rightly are disgusted by sort of are, are symbolized in this, in this uh, horrific tragedy with the Chicago police not necessarily having covered itself in glory in terms of controlling crime. So you can't even say, well, you know, the occasional innocent man being shot is worth all the non-crime we have because, of course, there's tons of crime and the cops aren't doing a, an awful lot about it either. So 13% or 19% closure rate now on, on felony murder. It's ridiculous. So there's there's a, a rumbling of discontent and a uh, federal prosecutor by trade named Lori Lightfoot said, goodness, I wonder if I can capitalize on this rumble of discontent against Rahm Emanuel and run for mayor. And, uh, right now, Rich Ranallo is screaming at the, at the, uh, computer. So, Rich, if you just hang on for a second, we're telling this for drama. <laughs> so we'll get to your problem. This is the individual right. patron chat out. Yeah. Well, Rich is a, is a, is a beloved friend. And I know he's screaming at the, at the, at the radio right now. So anyway, Lori Lightfoot is, is, uh, building up a, a, a team. Uh, and she thinks I will run as the reforming candidate against hateful Rahm Emanuel and being, I mean, she's short, but in all other ways, she's very different from Rahm. She's a black out lesbian. She's identified with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in a way that Rahm is not. Uh, there's there's a great deal of, of sort of uh, whispering and excitement about Lori Lightfoot's candidacy. Rahm apparently takes an internal poll and says, you know what? I'm not going to run. And he does that in late 2018 when everyone else in the world is fascinated by the boring old congressional elections, which we all knew how those were going to go. And so suddenly Chicago politics is upended because Rahm takes his uh, bat in his ball and his big pile of campaign money and he goes home. It's the old LBJ, why get beat when you come Exactly. Uh, and so uh, suddenly the machine is thrown into a tizzy and a ton of people enter the the campaign. The, the standard Chicago machine uh, solution to a potentially contested election is to bring a bunch of uh, uh, stooges in to soak up the opposition vote so that they will still win a plurality. But the trouble is the machine itself had not agreed on who the heir apparent was because they all thought Ron was going to run again. So you had 
four or five or six colorably machine candidates, including the late entry of Bill Daly, the Shemp of the Daly family, the former <laughs> Commerce Secretary, and Obama, the Chief of Staff, I guess he was. But obviously, he was such a rotten Daly that we sent him off to do things in Washington, not ruin Chicago. So uh, Bill Daly gets in late. If he'd gotten in early, he probably could have unified the machine ticket, but he's already against a bunch of other uh, machine candidates of one or another stripe, uh, including my former alderman, Tony Preckwinkle, who is a black woman uh, and is enormous. She's like six foot something. Uh, she used to uh, go in the 4th of July parades in Hyde Park, literally as the Statue of Liberty. Um, and she made her bones by being a progressive alderman who fought the machine. And then she stopped fighting the machine because it turns out it's a really good way to get to be Cook County board president, which is what she is now. Uh, so she basically made peace with the machine, started accepting fat contribu- campaign contributions from connected uh, guys, and wound up basically being the sort of, if you didn't know anything, and you said, well, she's a black woman, she can't possibly be machine, so she was sort of the faux progressive machine candidate. And they had another couple of those too, but let, let's leave most of those out. And then there was another guy who is sort of my guy in the race is a guy named Willie Wilson. And he's a, a gospel music entrepreneur. He's a black millionaire. And if Chicago were a normal city or rather if Chicago were not Chicago and who would want that, <laughs> he would be a Republican. Wait, right? what's the difference between those two statements? Yes. Uh, he would be a Republican because he's basically like just business and business and crime and crime and, and all that good stuff. And so he was sort of the, uh, the other main black candidate between himself, Tony and Lori Lightfoot. Now you would look at this. If you were looking at any other election in Chicago history and you would say, well, obviously the fix is in Wilson, Preckwinkle and Lightfoot will split the black vote. The machine will return possibly Bill Daly. I mean, in a, in a world in which Paul Vallis, uh, a former Clinton era hack who used to run the Chicago public schools was literally a plausible reform candidate. The election looked cooked. So you have, Preckwinkle, you have Daly, you have uh, another couple of machine candidates who, because they're going to lose, we don't need to talk about them, uh, Machado and some other people. And so uh, we come into the election. The machine is is happy as clams. Sure enough, Lori Lightfoot uh, comes in first in the primary, in the general election. Uh, the dust clears. Lori Lightfoot uh, wins uh, 17% of the first round vote. Tony Preckwinkle has 16%. Bill Daly has 14% and Willie Wilson 10% and then a bunch of other people uh sort of bring up the trailing end. And so that's that put the cat in the hen house because sort of wise guys who know Chicago politics note Lori Lightfoot manages not to win any of the black wards and still comes in first. So obviously it's now anyone's battle. And so it's going to be Lightfoot versus Preckwinkle. And as someone on Twitter said, what are you having a hobbit election in Chicago? But there we are. <laughs> and so Willie Wilson endorses Lori Lightfoot, which brings a lot of the black community over to her. And that is if Tony Preckwinkle's alarm bells were not going off already, they absolutely went off at that point. And it was right around that time that news broke that Ed Burke, who had been an alderman literally since the year I was born, since 1965, had been caught in a federal sting. Another alderman named Juan Solis had worn a wire for the feds, and he got in so much trouble because you're not supposed to wear a wire against a fellow alderman. Snitches get stitches. Uh, but anyway, he wore a wire and let the feds nail Ed Burke on shaking down a Burger King for campaign contributions. Now, for extra fun, that Burger King happened to be the Burger King whose security camera footage had caught the Laquan McDonald shooting and which had been already pressured by the Chicago Police Department to not ever turn over that security camera footage. And so it right. was already in, in the In news. the TV show Chicago, they've already built the set. They've already built that one Burger King and hired yeah. that one actor to play the guy who ran the Burger King. And they're not going to recast him. And they they loved him. He was so he, good. He's so got he a recurring deal, yeah. Exactly. He's got a catchphrase and everything. Like not everything. This will be a whopper of a scandal, he said, rubbing his head and cashing that product placement money. Anyway, so that sort of focuses the mind of all Chicago on Tony Preckwinkle, who it turns out had given Ed Burke's idiot son a $100,000 a year job at Cook County, who had taken 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in contributions from Ed Burke and Ed Burke connected uh, orgs. And um, uh, initially she was like, oh, I only took 7,000 from Ed Burke and I'm giving that back. And then someone audited her books because when you say idiot things like that, they do. <laughs> and when the feds are involved, they can. And yep. it's like, uh, it was a lot more than seven. And no, you have not given even the 7,000 back. Some so levels of government are still being so audited. So she really stepped in the, in the frickin' bear trap there. Ed Burke getting, and he just did such a classic. It was like a Batman perp walk. He looked, he had a pinky ring and his hat and he's going downtown. He, he looked like if you ask central casting for our Chicago show, give us a completely unoriginal white guy pol- politician villain. <laughs> you would, they would have brought you Ed Burke in as it turned out handcuffs. So, um, Ed Burke, by the way, got reelected. And so don't worry about Ed. He's fine. Um, <laughs> he's still bringing home the bacon. He's still doing it. He's still getting it done for everybody. Some people like the, the system to be worked from within. And, and how Ed Burke wins a majority Hispanic ward, we may never know. But anyway, uh, so that really nails Preckwinkle hard because she now, every time she comes up against Lightfoot and says, I have experience, Lightfoot says, yeah, you do. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's not good. That's of a bad corruption. <laughs> of corruption. And so Lightfoot is able to sort of leverage this. Uh, general disgust with, uh, the, the machine, specific disgust with Ed Burke. The fact that Tony is the machine candidate clearly now. Um, meanwhile, all the banks that were supporting Paul Vallis are pulling all their money and giving it to Lori Lightfoot because they're not idiots. Banks being really good at knowing which way wind blows. And, uh, she's making great hay of being a strong independent candidate. And then there was a, a thing that depending on who you listen to was kind of dirty politics that might have also put the, the nails on the coffin lid. Lori uh, Lightfoot, as I mentioned, is is out and a lesbian and proud of it. And in the traditional black community, that is seen as a minus. And so Tony Preckwinkle always would say, I am proud as hell that a, a, that an out lesbian is, is running uh, in the mayoral election. That's terrific. And many people in the African-American community saw that as an attempt by her to get them to vote against her out of anti-gay sentiment and many of them resented that and thought it was very transparent and this is based on a lot of conversations that i've had with a lot of people and maybe she was sort of caught between a rock and a hard place because if you don't ever mention it then people are like why don't you mention that you're running against a gay woman what's wrong with you but she did mention it and she mentioned it kind of a lot and it did kind of leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths so at the end of the day uh, which was in uh april Lori Lightfoot won literally every ward in the city. She won all 50 wards. Uh, she got 73% of the vote to Tony Preckwinkle's 26, or 74 to 26, I guess, if you're rounding. Um, and uh, although in Chicago, why should you round? And, and so Tony did not even win her old home ward. She won very even few precincts. Uh, if, if you look at the, at the electoral map, there's like a tiny scattering of Preckwinkle color in Hyde Park, my neighborhood, and then nothing uh, but Lightfoot as far as the eye can see. And so you're saying, oh, good. She's a progressive. She's a reformer. She's a federal prosecutor. That bad lady who got the money from the uh, Laquan McDonald side is out. Everyone's a winner. Well, except this is Chicago. So as I mentioned, Lori Lightfoot is a formal federal prosecutor. She was also on the police accountability board during, guess what? The Laquan McDonald case in which the police showed not just no, but less than no accountability. So one could argue, Hey, Lori Lightfoot, who exactly is, um, you know, whose side are you on, man? And it seems that Lori Lightfoot, because she is all about the cops, it turns out is like, Hey, you know what? All these closed schools could be, they could be police stations. And, Everyone in progressive Chicago, like, just went screaming into the street and got hit by a car, probably, as 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 a result of that. Good thing there are all those new police stations to uh, yeah, yeah. take care it's of all the people who just been hit urgent by cars. trauma care, yeah. uh, <laughs> or causing. It's one of the urgent traumas. Anyway, um, so this is what a lot of the progressive community was about: was like, oh my god, we have once again been suckered like the sheep we are into a situation where the machine has a candidate. 
And in this case, it's the machine versus the cops. There was a lot of other problems with Tony Preckwinkle. She had a lot of union endorsements, but they were all from the union heads, not the union workers necessarily. So a lot of people crossed over against their union to, to vote for Laura Lightfoot. She ran a very top-down campaign. She did everything wrong with a bad hand, and that's why she got so thoroughly shellacked. But she probably would have lost regardless of what kind of hand she played because it was just not the year that you were going to get um, uh, another machine candidate in. And the way you can sort of tell that is Chicago has also got six brand new socialist aldermen um, who overturned some of the older, oldest school aldermen in the city, not Ed Burke, God bless him, but uh, some of the other ones got bounced. And so now the, uh, what is generally called the progressive or the goo goo coalition uh, in the city council has gone from 10 of 50. And that's a very generous 10 to about 17, 18, maybe 19 of 50, depending on how you read it. And so the fact that Lori Lightfoot is going to come in and not necessarily have a rubber stamp council at the same time that she does not have machine backing to say the least is going to make her term interesting. And we all certainly hope that she pulls it together and, and does some uh, good stuff for everybody. But <laughs> signs do not point to um, uh, roses and sunshine for everybody because so this is does, Chicago. Does the machine try to absorb her or oh, yeah. does it that is absolutely to de-shempify uh, Bill Daly? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the machine basically, you know, you won 70, 73% of the vote, 74% of the vote. You have got people's attention. Winning elections is the job of the Chicago machine. They see a, a someone who won an election like that, they will move to her and offer her stuff. And just like Tony Preckwinkle got bought off, maybe Lori Lightfoot will get bought off. And if she begins basically as an ally of the police department, that is not a bad thing to have in your pocket when you're going up against the machine in terms of negotiations. But it does sort of pen you in in terms of solving the more egregious problems with the police department. So she's sort of like every Chicago mayor who is not a daily between a rock and a hard place because she has to placate her interests and backers with the still powerful machine, because I think she remembers, as we all do, Harold Washington, who legitimately tried to govern against the machine and was harassed and, and torn down and, uh, and opposed at every moment by the council. And given that Laurie Lightfoot has already got, you know, a, a bunch of angry, uh, rock thrown socialists, she does not need a bunch of white Northwest aldermen making ugly noises in their throat or just voting against her at every possible alternative and give the machine time to coalesce between, like you say, a Bill Daly or like uh, possibly th- uh, behind um, uh, uh, Chico or Mendoza or one of the other um, uh, acceptable machine uh, Hispanic candidates, um, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the smart play because Rich Daly, Richie, Richie Jr., famously brought the Hispanics into the machine um, very, very effectively, so effectively that one of them is wearing a wire, uh, to inform on Ed Burke. And if they, if they knew what they were doing, they would probably try and, uh, uh, raise, um, uh, Mendoza or Chico's, uh, profile and just keep them as a, as this is who we're going to replace you with if you get out of line, uh, type threat. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, so the main, well, actually, to give our, uh, non-Chicago listeners when someone else brings up Chicago politics, what's the, uh, the main thing that you can say to sound like an insider. What, what most people say, and, and for, for completely good and decent reason, is they say, well, goodness me, a black lesbian mayor, how great is that? And you can say, well, actually, she's also a friend of cops. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we told you this would be dispiriting, so let's have another commercial to cheer us up. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Protect this podcast from launchpad mishaps by joining such Patreon backers as... Derek Heimforth. Jeremy French. Kevin J. Maroney. Noel Warford. And Dave Choate. A tempting odor wafts to us. Oh, goodness, what is it? Is it cinnamon? Is it baking? Let's follow our nose to the food hut and find out. It's the food hut where we talk about the Canada Post's archetypal Canadian desserts. And I'm gonna just going to guess a donut, cruller, bear claw, and other donut. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we do not have the exclusive claim to the donut. And as you what? know from- We don't have the exclusive claim to the hot dog or pizza. We just do it better than everyone in the world. Um, and, and as you know from, you know, having been instrumental in the invention of the telephone, we don't claim things that aren't ours here in Canada. Oh, God, no. Not Canada. <laughs> yeah, what country am I thinking of that does that? Probably Argentina. Those jerks. Yeah. So, uh, Canada Post has released a new set of, uh, domestic stamps, uh, called the Sweet Treat Series and, uh, as is often there won't. Uh, they decide, they initially, uh, there was one dessert idea that they focused on as a, and then they, well, but they can't just have one region's archetypal right. dessert. We've got to find. The Quebecois you know, will get angry. Right. So we've got to find one from Atlantic Canada and one from Quebec and, uh. From the West. The West Coast and one from Ontario and one from the Prairies. And that's exactly what they did. So they picked, uh, five, uh, desserts as, uh, as archetypal, uh, treats. And uh, we're going to run through those now. So Let's do it. the first one is the one from Quebec. That's the sugar pie. And uh, because it comes from Europe and has a bunch of different derivations, this is also one that you will find in a variation in the Midwest that yes, they've added, they've added, added cream it. to it in the Midwest. But in uh, the uh, Quebec version, it's an open-faced pie with a, a brown, uh, delicious uh, sort of caramel uh, filling, which is not unlike the filling that would go in a pecan pie. Except it's like a pecan pie if you don't lard it down with all those stupid pecans and ruin it. Yeah, exactly so. Uh, and so that's... Uh, now, if you take that same thing and turn it into a tart, you've then got uh, Ontario's contribution uh, to this, which is the butter tart. And both the uh, Quebec... Uh, sugar pie and the Ontario butter tart may or may not have maple in them. Um, and so the butter tart, of course, is a single serving with a pastry crust and again has uh, this uh, filling. Unlike the sugar pie, the filling does not have flour in it. Uh, and it might have uh, raisins. Uh, it might have uh, pecans. It might even have walnuts. All of those things are wrong and bad. You should have none of those things. Oh, thank God. I was hoping I was hoping for a for an angry you case. Because the last thing I wanted was one of those Canadian things where we all have a meeting and decide that, why don't we put raisins and walnuts and pecans in? And then everyone will be happy. Right. Well, and we're not even to the... There's a controversy at the end of the segment, people. This isn't even... This I, is I'm, just, I'm, I'm here for all of the segments. I want controversy in all the segments. This is, not, this is not a controversy. This is just me being right. Uh, you do not want a, a no, nasty yeah, old like raisin in, in the filling. And this just exists eat a raisin in every, bagel, you losers. Right. And this exists in every version from... A homemade version that, uh, you might get at the, when the church ladies make food, uh, to, uh, the uh, fancy uh, bakery version. The local, uh, Toronto, uh, uh, blog, uh, every year does a, you know, where do you get the best butter tarts in town feature. Right. So you have right. the bakery version. And you even have like a mass produced, uh, uh, commercial version that the company that does the local equivalents of like the, uh, you know, our version of the Twinkie, right. uh, like Canadian uh, Little so Debbie. Commercial butter tart that you can buy. Little Gordo. Traduced by raisins. And, and so, and you can also get different variations of this. Sometimes the filling is, uh, solid and jelly-like. Other times, uh, there's a, a sort of a, a cooked layer and then there's a, uh, a drippy layer that will then come and excitingly run down your hand while you try to eat it. And again, may have maple in it and may not. And, uh, this was, uh, it's not necessarily invented in, but the first attested version of the butter tart uh, appears in the uh, cookbook of the Women's Auxiliary of the Royal Victoria Hospital Cookbook in my wife's hometown of Barrie, Ontario in 1900. Uh, so we don't know if uh, the author of that recipe, Mrs. Mary Ethel McLeod, invented the butter tart, but she was the first that we know of 
to have uh, documented uh, the uh, butter tart. And and for that reason alone, deserves the thanks for Indeed, the information. Yes. Um, even better than than the telephone because um, she did it without leaving home. Uh, if we're going to go out to the uh, the Maritimes, uh, then we get to the Blueberry Grunt, and Woo! this gives it to a whole uh, the taxonomic area area of the differences between bucklers, cobblers, crumbles, crisps, or grunts. Uh, in the stamp, mm-hmm. the uh, the grunt is pictured as having a a layer of fruit with uh, little sort of islands of biscuit on top. If you look up Blueberry Grunt on the Internet, uh, you will see many of the recipes make it look uh, more like a buckle where there's a sort of a biscuity layer on top. Uh, but it's uh, of these various things, it's the one with the most uh, uh, biscuit. And uh, unlike a, uh, a crisp, uh, it does not have like oats or uh, sunflower seeds or anything in it. So it's a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a biscuit and, and fruit uh, combination. Right. So it's basically like chicken and dumplings, except instead of chicken, blueberries. Yes. Uh, because what could be better than chicken? So blueberries are better than chicken. That, that's yeah. literally perfect right there. Yeah. So I'm I'm all about the Maritimes now. I thought that I would be rooting for the West, but no. Blueberry grunt. That sounds perfect. Yes. Uh, in the West, uh, that gets us to a berry that I, you or may not have had, Ken. The Saskatoon berry. I may not have had it. I, I looked it up and no, I have not had the Saskatoon berry. I've had huckleberries, uh, which are the, uh, the Montana version, I guess. But I've never had the Saskatoon berry. I feel I feel robbed, really. Yeah, they're, they're um they're a, a little bit uh, sourer than a uh, a blueberry, and they've sort of got a, a kind of a double structure inside them, and so they they need more sugar when you put them in a pie. Yeah. When you go to uh, Saskatchewan, uh, you will find all manner of different uh, Saskatoon uh, related pr- uh, products. Occasionally, someone here in Ontario will grow Saskatoons, and Valerie is a, a huge fan of the Saskatoon. Personally, they uh, remind me that they're not blueberries, but uh, right, but a Saskatoon yeah. berry pie. If you're going to go to the trouble to make a fruit pie and put Saskatoons in Why would you not use blueberries, the king of pies? Or maybe apples or cherries, fine. But, but however, uh, if you're going to give me a Saskatoon berry pie, I'm certainly going to eat it. Yeah. Or if someone gave you a bushel of Saskatoon berries, you'd be like, I guess I'd better make a pie out of them. We we have uh, we may even have Saskatoons in our, our freezer at this very moment because uh, uh, we have a friend uh, from Saskatchewan or who lives in Saskatchewan. So finally, we come to the controversy, uh, the Nanaimo bar, uh, which is a, God, a, uh, a sort of a, a square with a uh, graham cracker uh, bottom and then a layer of uh, sort of cakey chocolate and then a layer of uh, sort of uh, vanilla-y, creamy frosting, and then a layer of uh, chocolate icing pictured on the stamp as missing its uh, chocolatey, cakey layer. And so uh, people were quite horrified that the uh, image on the stamp is some fancy-schmancy bakery Nanaimo bar that I would, and and any uh, true lover of the Nanaimo bar, would turn their nose up at because it's missing one of the crucial layers. Now, now, if I may interject into this controversy, the uh, calm and, uh, as we all know, completely reliable words of Wikipedia, Wikipedia says there's only three layers in a Nanaimo bar, the wafer base, the coconut crumb base, the custardy icing in the middle, and the chocolate ganache on top. And it mentions no cake. It has no cake, Robin. Wikipedia's Nanaimo bar is cakeless. Right. Well, uh, some things on Wikipedia are wrong because uh, the... Best Nanaimo bars in the world are no longer available uh, because they were made by my grandmother Hannaford. And uh, they not only had uh, the crumbly layer moving into a cakey layer. And I have to say, most Nanaimo bar experts agree that the image is wrong and the and, and also the icing is wrong. It's sort of a, a mocha color and it should be more yellow. Um, and the other thing, the other secret of a Nanaimo bar is that the top layer of chocolate icing has just a tiny wisp of paraffin in it. To give it that uh, uh, satisfying, different uh, mouthfeel that uh, makes it a contrasting uh, layers. Well, like I, like I said, the, the at least the Wikipedia says ganache, which is going to have uh, that with that waxy quality that you're talking about. Uh, well, there there are different ways to get there, uh, but this was this was an old school Nanaimo bar, not whatever this. I am weird... I am in no ways qualified or interested in questioning Grandma Hannaford's archetypal exactly. Nanaimo bar. I merely report, Robin. Yes, you decide. But exactly, you, you're not. Speaking for the, uh, the, the, whatever Visigoth is, is approving. No, no. This, First of uh, all, the day that I mind. speak for Canada Post will be a hilarious day indeed, but it is not this day. Um, and also, right. 
again, you guys make your bars however you, however you darn well want. I'm just here as an innocent citizen of another land, a friendly land, that says, you guys got to get on Canadian Wikipedia, wikipedia.ca, and fix that crap. <laughs> Yes, it's uh, yeah, it's it's like regular Wikipedia, but it says A at the end. It's much politer. The the edit wars are just like uh, passive aggressive suggestions, right? So uh, when you're visiting Canada, you can probably find a butter tart uh, or a Nanaimo bar uh, just about anywhere. Uh, again, make sure you check the proportions on that Nanaimo bar before you waste your money. Yes, hurl it back in their face if they're wrong. If right. The, if the crumb base does not move into cake, blueberry grunt. Uh, you're going to probably need a, a relative to make for you. Mm-hmm. I think that's a more home cooking one. You're less likely to find that uh, at a bakery. And uh, the sugar pie and Saskatoon berry pie, you're more likely to just find in their in their home region. Just have to go and ask. And and I've had sugar pie pie in Quebec, and it was lovely. So that's my I'm I'm here to tell you, sugar pie is delightful. And the Indiana sugar pie, which, as you say, adds cream, is even better. Fortunately, we've we've expended all of our controversy and and can't deal with that issue, and so we have to move on uh, to see. Uh, I think our next hut has has some eating in it as well, but it's perhaps not the same kind of eating as us having delicious desserts. So let's just—it's a different one. Yeah, let's just savor this uh, imaginary flavor in our mouths, and then uh, there's another segment coming. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, that hut that covers all of the weirdness that our other more specific huts do not. But when we head over to the corner, we see that the gray alien and the Nordic alien are drinking a kombucha together. We look out the window, we see the alien big cat screaming on the moor. So we know we're dealing with the uh, paranormal or uh, peculiar crank theories, or in this case, the world of cryptozoology. Because at the request of Patreon backer Joe Luttrell, we are looking at an exciting new, or perhaps a, a variant uh, creature who uh, popped up in uh, beleaguered Puerto Rico uh, last summer in 2018, the the Gargola de Barceloneta. And uh, he, uh, like other uh, uh, Central and Latin American uh, cryptids, uh, enjoys feasting on chickens and specifically ripping out their throats and drinking their blood. And, of course, that's a big concern if you own chickens. Yeah. I mean, it's a, probably a concern regardless because you don't want a cryptid running around the place anyway. Right. And, indeed, the good people of Barceloneta were thusly concerned. Barceloneta is a, a little town. Um, it's on the north coast of Puerto Rico. Uh, one imagines that it's it's a quiet, idyllic land with um, uh, beautiful beaches and uh, pleasant chicken farms until it was plagued by a gargola. And the gargola is just Spanish for gargoyle. Um, and this gargola is about five feet tall and he's stocky. He's built like a bodybuilder, they say. And you're like, well, maybe he's just a short chicken eating bar- bodybuilder. Maybe that's my explanation. Ha ha. That'd be bad. not. Because he has four foot wingspan. He has a four foot long wing. And so, um, I'm not sure if it's an eight foot wingspan and each wing is four feet. You know what? I'm not, I don't care. He's got wings. That's my yeah. point. 
And um, uh, so that makes him not the chupacabra who you might think, well, maybe you just have a hideous, an ugly chupacabra or a different chupacabra. You shouldn't say ugly. That's that's uh, that's mean. Um, but a different chupacabra that that has thicker arms. And uh, but nope, he's got wings, so he's not a chupacabra. Chupacabra's a hop. The gargola flies. Um, and it also makes a cool screaming noise, um, which we probably shouldn't try because it will scare and annoy people. But uh, you can go online and listen to the scream of the gargola as impersonated by Puerto Rican fun lovers. And that, of course, leads to the question, maybe people in Barceloneta enjoy drinking and stealing chickens and making screaming noises. <laughs> and who would not enjoy such a thing? It sounds fun just saying it. But the, the gargola has sparked local crazy person Reinaldo Rios, who is running for governor. Uh, he's a ufologist and a retired teacher. One hopes he's retired anyway. Um, he believes that there are, um, space aliens coming to, uh, Earth. And like our Posadist buddies from a previous segment, he believes that the sooner Puerto Rico straightens up and, uh, flies right, the better they're going to be prepared to greet the aliens when they arrive. And we don't need to get into, uh, Ronaldo Rios's policy prescriptions. They do not seem to be particularly savory to me, but I don't live in Puerto Rico, so what do I know? Anyway, his Partido Extraterrestre Omnipotente, the PEO, is taking a firm stance on the Gargola. They're anti-Gargola. They feel that the Gargola uh, could start attacking humans if it is not caught uh, by vigilantes or the cops or cop vigilantes, which are the best kind of, of cops, I guess. Um, and and so there there's been at least one attempt uh, by Barcelonatans to go capture the gargola with cages and flashlights, and it um it, it turned up nothing as far as we know. Um, although one doesn't know how much drinking and hollering and chicken eating was done that night anyway, so maybe they discouraged it, or maybe the vigilantes and the gargola both produced roughly the same amount. Who can say? Robin, what do you got on the on the Barcelonata gargola? So the, the question with this uh, sort of style of, of chicken eating cryptid. First of all, this guy's interesting because he's on the the borderland between cryptid and weird humanoid. Yeah. He sounds in some descriptions like a gargoyle. So uh, some of the people who describe it describe them as being uh, animalistic. Um, and in fact, it does kind of sound to me like uh, this is a, a the game of telephone that often occurs with sightings of the paranormal where I think the original person with the sighting said it was like it was like the animal version of a bodybuilder, which seems to me was meant to suggest a heavily muscled animal, possibly mm -hmm. even quadrupedal, possibly even a chupacabra. But uh, when people heard uh, bodybuilder, the mental image you get is not of an especially muscular cross between a jackal and a, and a lynx or whatever chupacabra is supposed to be, uh, but rather you picture a humanoid. And I think this is then where the uh, gargoyle bit and the wings got added. So now we're picturing something that is, uh, that is much different. Uh, and we're getting ufologists involved because so that it now is in also adding the possibility, you know, is this uh, an animal or is it a, a humanoid uh, uh, creature? And of course uh, there are, uh, you know, other humanoids in this bundle. You got your Bigfoots, you got your, uh, your Mothmans, uh, but we're getting much further away from being something that is, uh, you know, could be a weird animal that nobody has identified before, or is in fact just a regular animal with mange. Or, or it could be like a really thick hawk. Right. And I, I, I think we can rule out birds. Because uh, yeah. uh, there aren't a lot of blood drinking birds. Well, but these, um, I mean, they they say that it sucks the blood and leaves the animal hypnotized. But you know, first of all, how can you tell if you've hypnotized a chicken? For gosh sake, especially a dead chicken. Right. I mean, the thing is, you you see a dead chicken is 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 um uh he's, he's all torn up. There is is there a, a Puerto Rican CSI unit here in Barcelona that's determining they were exsanguinated versus just had their head ripped off and their blood sort of ran out? I think. That you could say maybe a thick hawk, maybe you could say like you say a mange dingo or a or a hyena lynx or a chupacabra that has been misunderstood, um, or uh, yeah, it could be that animal mutilation is a classic uh, a first signal of heavy alien invasion in an area, and it's just a muscular gray with a wingsuit. And so the trick with the with the monster chicken eating monsters, uh, they're bad if they're your chickens who get eaten, but otherwise. 
they are low on the menace scale. Yeah. It's hard to be scared of a five-foot monster regardless, I think. Well, if this guy's a five-foot super muscular monster, I, you know, gargoyles traditionally in uh, in role-playing adventures are tough opponents. Yeah. So, But they're usually like eight feet and made of stone. Whereas this is a little guy. Well, uh, he may be a, a juvenile, right? Right. Or it may be like kobolds. You know what? I, I should not be all sizes against <laughs> tiny monsters. Yeah, you know, he's got a low center of gravity. He can slash you with his wings. You know who's small and has wings and you don't want to mess with? Geese. So Geese, is, that's true. Is, he, is yeah. he tougher than a goose? Sounds like. Do I want to mess with is this guy? Is he a thick goose? Yeah. So the most obvious thing is with just... again for blood? Yeah. Your uh, mystery adventure, you can sort of... You know, think this is foolishness and you're, uh, you know, the Ordo Veritatis sends you down there and you, okay, well, we got to deal with this because if other weird theories, uh, accrue to it, then yeah, if someone opened a ticket, we got to close the ticket. It's a junk, it's a junket to Puerto Rico. We'll get some sun and it'll be yeah. great. Um, and then you can find out that, oh, well, this is, this is just, you know, an adolescent version of it. And, uh, up in them, up in the mountains, this is in, in a, a mountainous region, uh, are, are the adults or in fact, uh, that eventually they sort of petrify, and it may be that the uh, the junior needs blood to take back and give to uh, the older specimens in order for them to depetrify long enough to uh, right. to wreak havoc in the countryside. So this could wind up being a straight up gargoyle uh, hunt, uh, which would be a, you know a change of pace for most contemporary horror games in that uh, they seem more like a physical threat. They don't necessarily seem uh, that's scary, and so the the next uh, step is to how to make gargoyles actually scary. Well, what if it's contagious? What if you know if you get uh, bitten by a, a, a gargoyle that uh, you begin to uh, petrify, and so your uh, you know one of the members of the group is then motivated to get up there and find the secret and find the ritual. And is there a way to depetrify, or are you doomed? Can you give them some sort of sacrifice in order to not join their tribe? Uh, and in that case. Uh, what is the nature of the sacrifice? How, uh, what terrible thing do you have to do in order to uh, not become a, uh, a gargoyleta? And another thing that you can, can use to make a five foot monster scary is that the characters are kids. It's, it's a, a, a stranger things, uh, tales from the loop, kids on bikes adventure. And your kids hellin' around Puerto Rico in the aftermath of the hurricane. So school's out. You just have been, you know, ganking around and then, uh, your neighbors are having their chickens taken. Maybe your, your, your daddy or mom's chickens have been attacked and you go up and you look into it and it's much worse that there's something really bad about that gargoletta, but no one will listen to you because they're too busy making memes and running for president on ludicrous, um, uh, platforms. And so you've got to deal with whatever really awful thing it is. And even if it's just the awfulness of a hideous monster that has been spawned out of, you know, um, uh, a U.S. military experiment or demon worship or something. And even if it's just one hideous monster, it can be a legitimate threat. And so maybe drop the scale down. The, the, the threat is chickens, but you don't have food shipments coming to your part of Puerto Rico because the island's still shut down after the hurricane. You've got to, um, uh, you've got to protect those chickens because that's the difference between living and, di- and, and, and starving. And, and that, and it becomes sort of a, a low key, uh, strong, uh, war and maybe lean into that, uh, sort of, um, quotidian nature of the fight and, uh, and, and, and make it, uh, make it interesting again. They could also, uh, be sort of the tip of a series of linked adventures that are hooking, uh, climate change and habitat destruction into the world of cryptids and monsters that, that live in the corners of the world. So it could be that the hurricane disturbed something that, you know, the gargoyles were, you know, perfectly well sealed in their mountain redoubts. In their abandoned satanic uh, monastery that had been set up by uh, evil Spaniards way back in colonial times. And so uh, now the uh, hurricane has released them. And uh, guess what? They don't want to hang around Puerto Rico. They uh, they migrate uh, to the continental U.S. and uh, they might find things that are more delicious to eat than chickens, like uh, you know, initially household pets. And uh, yeah, it starts with your dog or your cat, right? And then it gets worse. And that and that could be a fun urban adventure. Any t- any town that's got a big Puerto Rican population—Chicago, New York, wherever—obviously uh, uh, Miami, places like that. Um, and it can be a thing where, oh, it's just the crazy, uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the crazy people over there in the humble park are seeing gargoyles. That's funny news here on Chicago. Uh-huh. And then it turns out, nope, this is a real, a real threat that you're dismissing. And that can be your sort of 
parallel to the other, you know, if, if your game is about global warming, like you say, that can be sort of the parallel is that people are always dismissing the threat because it seems stupid and, uh, and will be inconvenient to, to take seriously. But you've got to take it seriously before gargoyles start, um, uh, graduating from dogs and cats to kids and then to grownups. Because if, if they wind up in Chicago where people are well fed, uh, mm-hmm. they may find that, uh, and you know, there are fewer it, chickens. Yeah, it didn't used to be that they uh, attacked people, but these ones are so slow moving and full of nutrients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they may, um, you know, graduate their way up. And, or maybe uh, that you attack, uh, you attack kids in, in a little town in Puerto Rico. Everyone knows it. And then they come after you and burn you out. But in a big urban jungle, you attack a kid. And everyone's like, well, that happens. It's a city. And so they take advantage of the social, uh, fabric being different. And if they're, you know, able to, uh, reproduce more quickly now that they've been freed or now that the habitat is more uh, amenable to or them. Or now that they're eating delicious human flesh. Eating delicious human flesh. Uh, one five foot tall, extremely muscular, uh, uh, being with wings, uh, is scary enough, but they're hunting in packs now. And, uh, and that becomes, uh, quite a problem. And it's all about how do you, how do you put the, the cork back on the bottle of this new invasive, uh, cryptid slash uh, uh, humanoid uh, uh, species. And uh, one thing that we now have to put a lid on is the length of this podcast. So I think we've uh, covered our usual uh, melange of, uh, of topics uh, from uh, the astronautical to the municipal to the uh, desertical <laughs> and now to the chupacabrical. And on that note, I think we'll be back uh, next week and talk about four other thinly related topics that we will attempt perhaps to interrelate at the end. (laughs) Some of which may actually have adjectives. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagion. Arc Dream. Duck Tower. And Bro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep muscly monsters from this podcast chicken coop alongside such Patreon backers as Matt Farr, Miko Araxanen, Trung Boy, Wayne Rossi, and David Mascari. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as This Bicycle Does Not Make Toast. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>